we're at a portion in our study of First Peter where um, the Apostle Peter brings in uh, the, Jesus and his suffering and so on, but he also ties in what he's saying with the flood. So this is a little difficult, um, and yet I think it's very important what he's saying. So if you're ready to dive into it, I'm ready to dive into it. So uh, let's just refresh our memories if you're following in your, your note uh, packet. Verses 13 through 17, which we studied last time together, it, he's, that is, Peter is focusing on the issue of suffering and that we want to be sure we suffer for the right reasons. In other words, that it's not because we've done something evil or whatever. And I think it's important for us to remember as well that Largely, no, not completely, but largely he's talking about the suffering which would have taken the form of persecution. Um, and that is not necessarily the only thing he's addressing here, but we've talked about that before, that he's writing this letter to what today would be Eastern Turkey, but he's writing to churches that are under severe persecution. Uh, in other words, saying that these people are suffering because of their belief and stand for Christ. They're being, and, and we know this will follow, some are even uh, being martyred. And so, I mean, these are extremely difficult things to, uh, to, to process for Christian. I'm standing for what is right, yet I'm being killed. I'm standing for what is right, and the, the, the state is persecuting me, or local authorities are persecuting me. So, anyway... Yeah. Oh, Joe, please. Would that have been Roman yes, it would have been more than likely the Roman governor of the province rather than the Caesar. The Caesar has not yet issued empire-wide persecution orders. That's a little detailed history, but that's essentially. But there, in the Eastern Mediterranean, there's growing antagonism to the church, and it's largely in, in the hands of the local Roman governors that's being carried out, of the, of the provincial governors. So it's in that context that Peter says this, verse 18. Really, let me read verse 17, because these two go together. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if, it, if that should be God's will, than doing evil. For Christ also suffered. And the for there, I, all of your translations should have that, F-O-R. That is a, a reason, reason why we should do that. Why should we be willing to suffer for that which is good? Why should we be willing to suffer for that which is standing for Christ? That could be persecution for, for violating a, a law of the Roman governor, provincial, whatever. Well, he says, consider Christ. For Christ also suffered. Now, that just is a statement of fact. Then he adds, once... For sins. Now, I want you to. I'm hoping all of your translations have it that way. I read from the ESV translation, but I hope all your translations have the phrase translated "once for sins." Do they? Okay, so died for sins once. Okay, well, it's it's the word order is a little bit different. The word "once" and "for sins." Those are the two, regardless of the word order. Now, let's take those apart. Why say it that way? Died once for sins, or for sins once, or however it is in your translation. Why emphasize once? Sufficiency. 
I'm, okay, all right, yeah, I have two answers. What did you say, Fred? Su sufficiency. Sufficiency, what did? I said one and done. Okay, one and done. Yeah, I mean, that, it, 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 what would he have in mind here? Because of the nature of Christ's death. Yeah, I guess you're not following my question. If, if you are a Jew, and many of these people who are receiving this letter would have been Jewish, and they think of a death that's sacrificial, what are they thinking of? The animal sacrifices, the burnt offerings, a day of atonement, all those kinds of things. What, and this is really important. It's a theological point, but I don't want to miss it. You miss it. That's why I'm stressing it. This is the same theme that you see in the book of Hebrews, where over and over it says Christ died once for all. Christ died once for all. Christ died once for all. Once for all death. That's what Peter is saying. It's not like, because remember, once the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is over, we're in a new order. I used to say a new age, but that doesn't work too well anymore. That's a lot of ramifications to it. But the new order, the new order of things, which means the old order, which was animal sacrifice to atone for sin, is gone. It's been fulfilled. The new order is made possible because of the once for all sacrifice of sin. That's what Peter's stressing here. And so that's why, that's why I like particularly how the the ESV does that once for sins, and then there should be a comma in this phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous. Right? Boy, nobody's responding to that. Yes. The righteous for the unrighteous. In other words, what, what do you have there uh, so clearly stated? Righteous for the unrighteous. The for there, the preposition for, is a substitute in place of. Right? Right. Okay, now I'm gonna I'm gonna every now and then I like to share with you some really deep theology. So I'm gonna do that. I'm sorry, I ran out of space here, so I put a little dash there. What we, or let me rephrase it, what Peter is really stating here in that little phrase, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in theology is called the penal vicarious substitutionary atonement. Now I want you to memorize that. It'll be on the quiz next week, or I might ask you to read for extra credit to write a thought paper on it. <laughs> now, let's just, I, I want you to really think about this. I know that's not normally how you think about things like this, or perhaps words or terms that you've used. But this is how, if you, and this is, of course, what theology is. You're pulling all of the teachings of the Word of God into a coherent statement, and that's theology. That's what theology is. Okay? And so what, what we are doing when we say this as a theological proposition or a theological statement, penal means punishment. So Christ took our punishment. He died in our place. Vicarious means he, uh, he completely and totally um, lived out everything we were supposed to have lived out 
in dying and, and suffering the judgment for sin because he was our substitute. And atonement is from an old Hebrew word which means a permanent total covering of sin. So you have four really important terms here which really um, capture what the old system was where the animal sacrifices, think of like the Day of, the Atone, Day of Atonement uh, or Feast of Passover, where a lamb dies in the place of a person, their blood is shed atoning. That's the language used. But when the book of Hebrews, or what Peter is saying here, a once-for-all sacrifice, you don't have to keep doing it over and over and over and over again. It's once. It's done once by Jesus. Golgotha. 2,000 years ago. It was done. That's why Jesus, John's Gospel, records this. As Jesus is about to give up the Spirit, the language that's used, he says, it is finished. Tetelestai is the Greek term. It is finished. What's finished? The whole plan of redemption. The atone- Everything's done. And the Father accepts that uh, because he raises him from the dead three days later. So, you know, I, I'm not going to belabor this, but if this is really an important theological concept or theological teaching that uh, it has great significance for you and me 2,000 years ago, and that's what, what Peter is using here, and it's, it's profound to do that. He's using an example of someone who suffered for doing good, Jesus. And his suffering was so magnanimous and so gracious and so awesome because it was once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. With this result, what, what, what's, it, what's the result? That he might bring us to God, being put to death. In, in other words, th- again, this is not something you don't know. You know all of this. But it's stated in such a succinct, almost pithy way all that Christ did in a couple of phrases, once for sins, righteous for the unrighteous, with this purpose in mind, that he might bring us to God, make it possible for us to have a relationship with God. To Another way of putting it is to be reconciled to God. And, I mean, it's just, it's, it's saying, if you're going to suffer, suffer for that which is good, righteous. Think of Jesus. He's our example. And that's, that's all he's doing. And yet in doing that, and that is in offering Jesus as, example, as an example, he's just teaching something profound theologically that I really want you to be familiar with. If, in terms of even the language that you used. John, did you ever hear? What's the distinction again between vicarious and substitutionary? It, they're very, they're very close. The the vicarious usually has, he's living, he's living it out completely in our place. Substi- you know, it's just, it's a little bit of a of a deep oh, experiencing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I, um, I can vicariously suffer with you, if I, you know, I, I'll make this up. Someone who's had cancer. And then they, they are with someone else that has, you can vicariously suffer with them because you have experienced that. You know what they're going through. Um, you know, you often, uh, uh, if a couple is struggling in their marriage, you try, and, and as a pastor, I've done this many times, you try to link them up 
with another couple that's gone through something similar. They vicariously can identify. So that's that's a great that's a great way to put it, John. That, adding that little experience to it. Jesus experienced us on our behalf as our substitute. This is just powerful thoughts that are in, in the depths of, of, of doctrine of our faith, but they heighten for us why, why it was so important that Christ suffer. All right? Any a good question there? Anybody else? Yeah, Ron. Perhaps the difference substitutionary um, is that he suffered so that we don't have to. That doesn't mean we're not going to have to. But he paid the price that we're incapable of paying. Which is, um, you know, shedding his blood, which is the atoning covering of sin once for all, and dying in our place. Experience. This is what is really hard to understand. This experiencing that separation from the Father. To me, that is the most difficult thing for me to get my arms around, just thinking about it. When Jesus is on the cross and he cries, you know, why have you forsaken me? Father, you know, Eli, Eli, he says it in in Aramaic, but why have you forsaken? He's experiencing something. There's that vicarious nature. He's experiencing something that we will never have to experience if we put our faith in him, which is separation from the Father. And I, you know, it's it, it's just the complexity of the theology of the Trinity that's hard for us to maybe get our arms around. But um, yeah, it's just, and and then the other aspect of that, of course, is the finality of death, which is a, a death is the the body being separated from the soul, but it's also a spiritual death being separated from the Father. You and I will never experience that death for us. Um, which is, of course, what Paul really says in 1 Corinthians 15. Death for us is not is no longer our enemy. It's not something we fear. It's not something that that we abhor because it's now just a portal. I don't like that term, but I don't know how else to say it. It's a portal to the next phase of our life, which is eternal life. With, with, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, as you know. So, I mean, it's just all of those things are the consequence of what Jesus did for us. That's why he says that he might bring us to God. This is the only path. There's no other way for this to happen. And so Peter, in saying Jesus' example, dumps all this theology stuff so that we really understand how profoundly important it is to understand what Jesus did for us. So back to the once, the one means ultimate and the sacrifice appeased God, the <coughs> ultimate one. Mm-hmm. And it's, so that's, that's a, really the message that this was a sacrifice able to appease God. Yeah, and actually even the, the stronger words used four times in the New Testament is propitiate. propitiate. It propitiates. It, it, it appeases the wrath of God. It satisfies the wrath of God. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, 12 through end of 53, it says, God poured out his wrath. That is just, I mean, you have to think about that. Poured out his wrath on his son. I mean, I, it, it, I've thought about that a, a lot. Just think, of poured out his wrath on his son so that he doesn't have to do that to us. If you think you can get mad, just think of Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, and it's it's a righteous 
understandably justifiable wrath because of everything the human race has done in defying God. And, his, his, and you know that's true. But the greatest expression of God's love for us is what he did to Jesus on the cross. That's the greatest. I mean, you, that's almost like an oxymoron, but it isn't. Because in pouring out his wrath on his son to propitiate that wrath, that's the New Testament word, it's an indication of how much he loves us. And how much he will, the, the extent he will go to win us back which I think is the right way to put it. But we have to accept that. And if we don't accept, you know, I always, we, the, the, you know, the gift's on the table. If you don't pick it up, it'll never be your gift. Well, anyway, you know that. All right, that's great. I mean, any other? Andrew, how's the new little one? How old now? Uh, about seven weeks now. Seven weeks, yeah. okay. Six or seven weeks, yeah. So you have two running around now. Sleep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Change your life, huh? Yeah. I'm going to say something your dad's probably said to you many times. Enjoy every day with your children. It goes really fast. I wanted my kids to stay seven. You know, oh, Now they're 35 and 29. Oh, goodness. Notice what else he does here. Here's where it gets problematic. It's like, Peter, why didn't you just put a period there? But he doesn't. Being put to death in the flesh but made alive in, or you could translate that with, or you could translate that by the Spirit. So what, what does he mean there? He's reminding us of something, first part, in the flesh. He's reminding us of something. Jesus was fully human. Now, you, you might think, well, why is that such a big deal? It is, it is a really big deal because there was a major, major block of teaching in the ancient world that Jesus was not fully human. He just appeared to be human. He wasn't really fully human. Now, that's ludicrous, I mean, when you think about it, but that was a teaching because they couldn't accept that God could take on flesh, take on a body. So Peter's just reminding us, he really died. He was a he was the God-man. He was fully human, and he really died. His brain stopped functioning, his lungs stopped breathing, his heart stopped beating. He really died. And he was raised in the Spirit. And you, you again, you can't translate that by the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, which Paul teaches us in Romans. But I think part of what he's saying is similar to what you and I understand death to be. Now, really follow me here. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, again, just keep following me. When you and I die, where does our body go? I mean, I don't know. Maybe you choose to be cremated, but whatever. Let's just pretend you don't. You just, your body goes into the grave. Okay, or it goes to a crematorium or whatever. So your body, your body now has ceased to function. But where is your spirit? It's with the Lord. And it, your spirit or soul, I mean, however you think about those things, will be with the Lord until Jesus comes back for his church. First Thessalonians 4, John 14, all those wonderful promises. When our 
spirit will be rejoined with our resurrected body. But until that point, you and I exist with the Lord as spirit. That seems to be what he's saying here. He's talking about that time frame between when Jesus, as the God-man, died and three days later when the Father resurrected him. And what Peter says is, what did Jesus do in that interim? In the spirit which, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formally did not obey. So, so far, do you understand, not, not understand he went and proclaimed to the spirits, but do you understand in the spirit. In other words, what Peter is doing is he, it's like he's saying, in that interim between when Jesus died as the God-man and was resurrected as the God-man by the Father, what did he do? He tells us one thing he did. He proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey. Now, proclaimed can be understood. It's from a word... Uh, that you might a herald, a herald in the ancient world. You know, a king, a king would issue a war, an order, or a victory, or a proclamation, and the herald would stand out on the square and say, "Here is what King Jim Beck announces," and everybody would perk up their ears and listen because he's the sovereign lord of our kingdom. I made that up because Jim's sitting to my right. He's not a king, in case you didn't know that. <laughs> So what is Jesus doing? He's announcing his great victory. And to whom is he announcing it? This is what's problematic. To the spirits in prison, because they formally did not obey. There's been so much discussion about this. What is Peter talking about? Whom is he referring to? Um, because he uses the term spirits. Is he just, and this is, these are the two major possibilities. So just stick with me. Is he talking about all of those who have died, but died without faith? Putting it another way, died rejecting the message, rejecting the offer on the table? Or is he referring to that group of angels that rebelled against God that are referred to in Genesis chapter 6? who um, impregnated the daughters of men, and from them were born the great Nephilim, I'm basically quoting. Either one, and it's honestly, it's, there's, articles have been written, books have been written, people have lectured on this, and because there's so many opinions, whatever position you're going to hold, hold it with humility, because you might be wrong, because <laughs> there is simply not consensus on how to look at this. Is Jesus, excuse me, is Peter referring to what Jesus does is he announces his victory to those who have rejected the message or to the angels, the angelic beings who rebelled against the Lord and so on. I'm not sure, I, I, you know, I honestly don't have a really, really strong conviction either way. What is the most important thing to, and this is what's really important, is the word proclaimed or announced. Announced his victory. 
That's, that's, it, it's a statement, I don't have to put this, this is a statement of immense triumph. So you see what Jesus is doing in, b- between the point when he died as the God-man and is resurrected as the God-man. I don't believe the Bible teaches he went to hell. What the Bible teaches is a victorious, triumphal proclamation that the victory has been won. And the Father will prove that by resurrecting him on the on Easter Sunday morning. So, I, I guess what I'm what I'm trying to um, I'm trying to do for for all of us, myself included, is not not so much get hung up on the who are these spirits in prison? How do we understand that and say, well, it's so hard? Focus on the proclamation. It's an announcement, a declaration of triumphal victory. That's why we wear crosses around our neck. That's why we put crosses in our church. Because that's a despicable form of execution. It's absolutely horrific. But for you and me, it's a symbol of triumph. For you and me, it's a symbol of hope. For you and me, it's a symbol of the proclamation of what we believe. That's why I'm always a little bit offended when non-believers wear crosses. Because, you know, why are you wearing that? You know, I mean, I'm glad you are wearing it. You know, let's talk about it. But it's just like, it, to them, it, there's not the meaning it is to someone that is, is truly a believer and has embraced all that Christ has done for them. It becomes a symbol of triumph. And that's what Jesus is really, uh, excuse me, that's what Peter is really saying here about Jesus. So, any questions? Or do you want to talk about this a little more? Yeah, Ron. I, yeah, I didn't know I had one. You, you had this, one what question? Yes. The, the, this this passage it's always bothered me that well, I have always, but it bothers me because my church, not all denominations I belong to, but my church and their creed says, you know, he died on the cross and descended in hell. The Apostles' Creed, yeah. Yeah, not, not, not every church includes that. I don't know what other creed they use, but there's an Nicene Creed study, Apostles' Creed, or some churches leave that phrase out of the Apostles' Creed. But, so my question is, if not hell, what does he mean by prison? What does what, Peter what? mean by prison? If, if not hell, what does Peter mean by prison? Well, oh, I see what you're talking Now I understand your question. I'm sorry, first I didn't understand your question. Um, well, it, that's why it could be referring to that group of angels who rebelled against God and impregnated the daughters of, of, of men. That's in uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 6. Because what God does is God then assigns them to a place of judgment, a prison of judgment. Uh, the New Testament will call that Tartarus, T-A-R-T-A-R-U-S, two T-A-R, T-A-R, Tartarus. And um, that's why it could be referring to them. And what often causes people to assume that's what you're referring to, because in the very next clause, Peter brings up Noah. He brings up the days of Noah. Now, I'm probably confusing you here, and I don't mean to do that, but I'm answering your question. Why he uses the term prison, it could be a metaphor for hell, that's somewhat unusual if it is, but it could be, or it could be referring to Tartarus or to that prison for that small, well, 
relatively small group of angels whose rebellion against God included impregnating the daughters of men, which produced the Nephilim in Genesis 6. I, this is, you're asking a question. That's the only way to answer the question. If it was confusing to you, I'm sorry. I don't know how else to explain it. So now Rob is in conclusion. Is anybody else confused or are you with me? <laughs> Even if you're not with me, you're not going to ask any more questions, are you? I, I'm sorry. I didn't write this. Peter did under the inspiration of spirit. So we have to come to terms with it. Now, what he does next adds to um, the difficulty to a degree. So here we go. Because for only not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through their what? Through water. Then verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to you, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Good night, Peter. That's one of the reasons why, again, and I'll say this for the third and final time, the spirits in prison, because he brings up Noah, probably is a reference to those beings in Genesis 6. And so he transitions now. This is where it gets... I prayed that the Lord would return so I wouldn't have to deal with this. That was supposed to be a joke, but nobody got it. But <laughs> So yeah, this is hard, but we're going to give it a shot here. What he does now is he launches into a comparison. And the comparison is between the waters of the flood and the waters of baptism. Now, since I'm not the Holy Spirit and I'm not Peter, all I can say to you is I would never have chosen to make this analogy. If I'm going to try to explain something to somebody, I wouldn't make it an explanation using this analogy. But I'm not the Holy Spirit, and I'm not Peter. This is what they've chosen to do. And yet, at the same time, it's quite powerful what he's really saying here. So I'm going to fill some of this in in a minute. But if you, if you follow what I've written up there, what I'm about, we can start to unpack this. What he's doing, what Peter's doing is here, he's drawing an analogy between the flood, the waters of the flood and the waters of baptism. Now look at what he says. <clears throat> God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now you remember, it was 120 years from when God announced that he was going to send the flood until he sent the flood. In that 120 years, Noah builds the ark and all that stuff that you're familiar with. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So, what you have here is judgment. The judgment of the flood. What you have here is judgment. Judgment of the flood for sin. Judgment of hell for sin. 
What saved Noah and his family, the eight, Noah and the eight individuals, his sons and their, 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 daughter, their wives, what saved them from the judgment of the flood for sin? The ark, which was built, that preserved them, saved them, and in both cases, I forget somebody said it, in both cases it requires faith for God to do that. Noah and his family had faith that what God said to do, they did, and so on. But the waters of the flood, what saved them, God made a provision of the ark to save Noah and his children and their wives from the judgment of the flood. The judgment for sin, which is what Peter's talking about, which Jesus' sacrifice did for us, and so on, which he's already talked about. Baptism. Now here we get into some real difficulty because I know around this room, I know about four of you go to different denominations, different traditions, and this is an area we don't agree on this. So I'm going to do my best to try to be somewhat neutral but also central to the text. Um, It is Christ and his finished work who saves us. And there is a parallel between the ark is the means of salvation, and Christ is the means of salvation. That's not that big of a deal. But that's part of what he said. But how, why does he bring up baptism? Let's make sure we're really clear on what baptism is. I'm going to start this way. The term baptism in the first century comes from, as a practice of the church, comes from a Greek word, baptizo, which means literally to identify with. It came from the textile industry. And so let's just pretend this is, this is a white piece of paper. So you're in the, you're in the um, textile industry in the ancient world. Not you know, textile, just means you're making cloth, okay? And you have a white cloth. And you take this into a vat of dye. What verb would you use? I'm baptizing this piece of cloth in that dye. And it comes up out of the dye purple. It has now taken on the identity of that purple. Now, are you with me so far? Yep. I'm trying to explain to you why that word was used. Baptizo in Greek means to, it was in the, uh, the uh, textile industry, you, you baptize a piece of cloth into a vat of dye, and it comes out with a new identity. You follow me? It was white, now it's purple, or red, or blue, or whatever. Okay? So, when Jesus chooses that term, because Christ uses it, and now his disciples use it, baptism, which corresponds to this, corresponds to what? The saving work of Jesus Christ the saving work of God through the ark. The saving work of God. As Noah and his family who had faith in the Lord were saved from judgment, you who have faith in the Lord are saved through judgment by your personal ark, which is Jesus. And so baptism symbolizes that. The The term baptism means identification. You are identifying with a piece uh, or with a vat of of dye. You are now purple. You were white. 
So for you and me, when we go through the ordinance of baptism, whether you believe in infant baptism or believer's baptism, I do not want to get into that debate right now. But regardless of each, every, which, however you see that, the teaching of baptism is you are identifying with Jesus Christ. It is a public identification with him. It is a public identification, I am a new person in Christ. Just like that piece of cloth is now identified with that dye and takes on a whole new identity, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ 242 times in the New Testament, you are now called being in Christ. You have a whole new identity. And baptism symbolizes that. Okay? okay? So what, what Peter is doing is he's saying, I want you to think, what is it that saved Noah? The ark from the judgment of the flood. And Noah and his family had faith in the Lord. And that's what Genesis 6 tells us. They had faith in the Lord. You and I put our faith in the Lord. Christ is our ark. Again, just following the parallel. That saves us from judgment. And baptism symbolizes, symbolizes that. It doesn't do it. I mean, baptism doesn't do it. Baptism symbolizes what Christ did. Because you've got to go back to, the, what, what verse was that? You've got to back to verse 18. That's what saved you. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is your new identity. It, as the waters of baptism symbolize what Jesus did for you. And you're now identifying with that. You with me? We, we used, to see, um, used to sing a song, What can wash away, wash away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know? And it's those little choruses we used to sing in, in Sunday school and so on that powerfully encapsulate what he's really saying here. And so, he says, not as a removal of dirt, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, the forgiveness, the good, con- the, the cleared, cleansed conscience, the forgiveness. And why is all that possible? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I just... I don't know how else to explain this. Uh, I've done the best I possibly can to link these two things together, which is what Peter's doing. I'll say it one more time, but it doesn't matter. If I were the Holy Spirit and Peter, I'd never have done this. I would not have done it this way. But he's choosing to do it that way because, in a sense, I really think I understand what he's trying to say. What is it that saves you? What is it that saves you from judgment? Noah's day, it was putting their faith in God and he saved them from the waters of judgment through the ark. What saves you from judgment? Jesus Christ. In baptism, you publicly identify with what he did for you. He cleansed you from sin. He washed away your sin. He's not cleaning your... You're not taking a bath where you clean the dirt from your body. It symbolizes all that Christ did for you. 
Okay, I saw a couple of hands up. I don't know who was first, so I'll start with uh, John. Yeah, is this the verse that one of the one of the major religions uses to justify you're saved by baptism if a priest doesn't if you if you're not baptized, if a baby's not baptized, I'm not saved. It is uh yes, it is one of the verses that is used that baptism and I'm going to put it this way. Baptism is the means of salvation. Do you understand what I mean by right. the means? It, that is what saves you. Right. And that is not what Peter is saying here. That is not what he's well, teaching. Of course not. But, but that is, this yeah. is a verse that is used to justify that position, if that's a position you hold to, yes. And empowers, it empowers people, basically. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you believe that it, the priest or the pastor that performs that infant baptism is the agent God is using to affect salvation. Yeah. Thank you. So I don't know if I can articulate this question well, but when he talks about here, like in verse 31, the correspondent baptism now saves you, is he talking about a physical act of baptism, or is he talking about some spiritual transaction that takes place as part of your commitment of faith and I don't know if I'm articulating it well, but um, oh, that's a great question because you're opening up um, a lot of uh, you don't have to address it. No, 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 no. I, what I, I'm trying to do, uh, Jim, that's a great question. I'm going to answer it. Um, there are some who would suggest that when Peter is using the term baptism here in verse 21, he's not referring to the ordinance of baptism. He's referring to your identification with Jesus Christ, which results from the Holy Spirit baptizing you into the church. And there's a real appeal to that. I mean, that's a very appealing way to look at that. And I think without any question, um, well, I guess I could write that up, without any question, what he is, what he is doing here in verse 21 is referring to our position in Christ. It's the positional truth of who we are in Christ. Baptism is an outward sign. If it is the ordinance, it's an outward sign of much deeper. I mean, it isn't the act of whether you immerse or sprinkle or pour, whatever mode you use. That isn't what saves you. That is a symbol. It's a public identification with. It's an object lesson of what has happened to you inside. And that is consistent with everything else the New Testament teaches. My own, my own position on this, and that's why I was hesitating, do I want to get in and try to explain how I see this? This is very, very um, much in line with how the Apostle Paul uses baptism. Um, for example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, as Israel was baptized with Moses in the Red Sea, so you are to be baptized with Jesus. He said, hold it, wait a minute. I've studied Exodus 14 many times, and I don't ever remember Moses holding a baptismal service in the Red Sea. 
not supposed to be a joke, and nobody's getting it. But what's he saying there? It's really, it's again, it's, it's at the heart of what baptizo means. As ancient Israel identified with Moses as he led them through the Red Sea, so you are identifying with Jesus Christ. You are baptized with Jesus Christ. You are identified with Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. So he's making, again, an Old Testament parallel between how ancient Israel was identified with Moses as their deliverer as he leads them through the Red Sea at God, by God's command. You are now identified with Jesus Christ, who's your deliverer, your Savior from sin. Jesus. And you are identifying with him. So, Jim, that's how I really understand this. That's really what he's I don't think he's primarily talking here about the ordinance of baptism. I think he's talking about you now are you are now publicly identified with Jesus Christ, who saves you. Because that Greek word there, which corresponds to you, the Greek word is antitupos. It's a type. The ark and saving from the flood is a type. And Moses, sorry, Noah and his family identifying with and trusting God, you identifying with and trusting God, that's what saves you. You are now identifying with Christ. You have a whole new identity. I mean, it's, 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 and, and this is all accomplished because Paul will say this in Romans 6. He says it twice. You're dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ. You are baptized into Christ. You have a whole new identity. And that's how I think he is helping us to see this. Please go ahead. Absolutely. For me, baptism was like putting an exclamation point on a decision that I had made, and it was extremely affirming to me. It was like it was a, you know, I placed on a marker, mm -hmm. you know, and for me it was very personal, probably to those that watched as well, but mm -hmm. for me it was something that was a very strong dividing line. Well, I mean, it, as you summarize that in your own life, Jim, you, you've nailed it. It's how God really wants us to look at that. It is. It's an exclamation point. It's a dividing line. You're drawing the line in the sand publicly. This is who I am, and this is where I stand. And it is. It's, that's why it's public. Uh, you know, I, I'm in another one of my classes on teaching Acts, and uh, we're now in, in chapter uh, 5. But in those early chapters, like after Pentecost, the, the Pentecost Sermon of Peter, <coughs> If, if you remember that, it's really, it must have been really something. 3,000 people trusted Christ that day, and they were all baptized. Amen. Now, that, what that means is, and just think about that. What that means is, and if any of you have been to Jerusalem, I uh, can't remember if anybody's been to Israel with me or not. Well, if you've been, to, you've been on T Temple Mount, you know, all around Temple Mount are these mikvotes. Mikvotes, it's a Hebrew word. These, these were the cleansing pools. Before you went up to the temple, you would, you would cleanse yourself. That's where they did all the baptisms. And just imagine all of these. It's the, remember in Pentecost, these are the diaspora Jews. These are the Jews from all over the Mediterranean world who come to Jerusalem for Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Pentecost, which is a, a, a holiday in the Jewish festival of, of their, their year. And so there are thousands and thousands of them, and they're here. These people are coming to this guy, Jesus, Messiah. They're putting their faith in him because Peter's preaching. My goodness, there are mikvahs being baptized. What are they doing? They're drawing the line. We're publicly identifying. Jesus Christ is my Messiah, my personal Savior. 
And 3,000 Jews to do that on Pentecost would have been an extraordinary thing to witness. Those people were drawing a line in the sand in their life, putting an exclamation point. We now believe in Jesus. He is our personal Messiah. That would have been an incredible thing to see. One of the cool things, that can I tell you this? It's really neat. One of the cool things you see in, in Luke's doing in Acts, he tells us in Acts chapter 1, there were 120 believers. Acts 2, there are 3,000 believers. Acts 5, there are now 5,000 more. And that's only the men. So what you, he's just charting the growth. In a couple of days, the growth of the church. It's now over 10,000 people. It's just kind of neat to see that. And all of them get baptized. They're all publicly identifying in Jerusalem with Jesus as a Messiah. That's what Peter's getting at here. Um, it's our, our new position in Christ. This new identity we have in Christ. It's an extraordinary thing to, to, to really grasp. I'm just trying to think of the practicality on the cleansing pools. Was this something that was part of the temple? It was. Mm-hmm. So what's the likelihood of them being able to use these for people being directed toward Jesus and being committed to Jesus when they have just, you know, a couple months ago or so, um, put him to death? Yeah. Yeah. Where, where, are the, where are the people who are the Sadducees where are they at in all this <laughs> uh, they're about to say don't preach Jesus Messiah in Jerusalem and they'll throw these guys in prison but these um, I, 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 I want you to understand kind of the, the practicality of this there are literally Daryl dozens of these mikvots all around Temple Mount especially on the south side on the west side not so much east side because that's the Mount of Olives. And it was a very common thing. I mean, it wasn't supervised. It wasn't, you know, Sadducees or Pharisees standing over there with a gun. You can't go in here. It was just, it was a common, ordinary thing. You went in there and cleansed yourself before you went to the temple. So it's a very common, ordinary thing. It was everybody did it. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people would be doing it. This is a festival. So what Peter's doing is they're organizing. I, I don't know how they would have organized it, but they're dividing. Going, you take this 30, you go over to that mikvot. I'll take this 30 and do it, and you're baptizing. I knew it had been an incredible thing to see, and you could do it quickly because there's so many of them. And it was just, I've, you know, I've stood there many times, and I've taught it when, when, when we stand there. I want you to understand that what we're looking at, these would have been used by Peter and the other disciples on Pentecost when they baptized people. And it would, it would have just been an incredible, what, what a testimony. It's exactly what Jim just said. It's a testimony. These people, these Jews, these are diaspora Jews, when you read all you know, the descriptions in Acts 2, where they all come from. They're all over the Mediterranean world. They're coming to Jerusalem. And they are publicly taking a stand. This Jesus, whom you crucified, is the Messiah, and I am identified with him. Baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as you know, the formula. It's really, it would have been an exciting thing. We don't get excited like that anymore, but that would have been an exciting thing to see. But Jim's, I appreciate Jim personally testifying to that. That is to be that kind of a marker in our lives that we're, lying, we're laying down for ourselves and for others. I publicly identify. When I do baptism, that's always the first, uh, when, excuse me, the second question I ask people. You're willing to publicly identify with Jesus Christ. And the first question is, give me a brief testimony of, of how you came to faith in Christ as your Savior. The greatest honor in my life would do that with my kids. 
So anyway, and by the way, I also baptized my wife. <clears throat> I'll tell you the reason. Can I tell you why? Sure. She, she, uh, her uh, family. Uh, she came from a Methodist family, which practiced infant baptism. When Pammy came to faith in 1972, uh, she just a little later on, she just had the desire to uh, be baptized, and so uh, we, we did that. It's kind of a neat thing to do. All right. Uh, any other questions? Or <laughs> this? Yeah, John, please. Public identification of Christ is. More an adult baptism, isn't it? Rather than on an infant baptism, is there a difference there? Well, John, normally those who um, believe in that tradition would say the parents are publicly now declaring that this child is dedicated to Christ, uh, is in the covenant community, and it is now, I'm going to put it the way, a Presbyterian puts it, it is now our responsibility in the covenant community to raise that child in the nurture and admonition of the story so that when it comes to convocation class, they will personally put their faith in Jesus Christ. So baptism starts it. Confirmation is to complete it when they personally acknowledge and put their faith in Christ. Okay? Verse 23. Speaking of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That is the language of Psalm 110, verse 1. Peter has just paraphrased that. You see, the resurrection is the finality, and you know this, I'll just state it, is the finality of the redemptive plan. It proves that the Father, Paul puts it this way in Romans 1, the Father, through the Spirit, raised him from the dead. Meaning that sacrifice, that's vicar- well, it. that penal, vicarious, substitutionary atonement was completed. The Father acknowledged that and brought him back to life. The penalty for sin, death, has been paid. It's over. And then he ascends into heaven, and where is he? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. That is a symbol of triumph. That is a symbol of magnificent authority. And he says, this is Peter, says, with authorities, angels, and powers, having those three, angels, principalities, and powers, they, they are the ranks, the hierarchy of the spiritual world. They're the angelic hierarchy subjected to him. What is the one part of God's universe that is not yet subject to Jesus? You obviously didn't hear that question, so I'll repeat it. What's the one part of God's universe that is not yet subject to Jesus? Planet Earth. Planet Earth is still in rebellion against God. Now, every time... And every one of you around this table, I hope it applies to you, every time a human being puts their faith in Christ, the dominion of Satan is diminished. The rebellion of the planet is lessened just a little bit. And human by human, family by family, the rebellion comes to an end. But it awaits the triumphal return of Christ for that to be completed, as you know. But it's just it's how Peter does this is just magnificent. It's just 
you wish he would have done it a little simpler. Maybe you don't. But it's, I had to teach it, so I wish he would have. But it's, I hope it's clear to you what he's tried to do here. And um, if you go back to verse 18 where he starts and it makes the connection with verses 13 through 17, the realities of you suffering, make sure it's for the right reasons. And remember, Jesus suffered for you with a triumphal end and purpose to it. My pastor, uh, in his sermon, I, I wasn't speaking anywhere this Sunday, so I was in uh, my church, and he preached a, a sermon that was really one of the best I've ever heard uh, on the realities of suffering and pain and hurt in a fallen world that we all experience. And he, 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 I think he read from 17 or 18 different verses throughout the Bible why we should give thanks for hurt and pain and suffering. <laughs> I'll repeat that. Why we should give thanks for hurt, pain, and suffering. Identifying with Christ. Yeah, we're identifying with Christ. And this is this was the phrase he kept saying. It's for your good and it's for God's glory. It's for your good and it's for God's glory. Now, for your good can only be understood from the perspective of eternity. Because if you're going through it, sometimes it's really hard to see it for my good. But it's, and he, that's why I say, I think he quoted from like 17 different passages, read from about 17 different passages. He had one core text he was using, but to try to show that this is God's perspective on this. And it was, it was encouraging to a lot because our church has been for a lot. He just lost his dad. Um, by the way, his dad uh, was a good friend of mine. He was on my board for a while. But his dad died a couple of weeks ago, and I was a part of the funeral service. But the, the week before he died, Doug, um, uh, Doug Shea, that was his name, his son Matt, interviewed him in our church. And they taped it. That thing's going viral. It's, it, thousands and th- all over the world people have hit it. If you're really interested, it's our, on our website, Steadfast Bible Fellowship Church, steadfast.org. But anyway, uh, let me tell one story. Last week, uh, the, one of the Bible studies at Lexington Prison in Lexington, western Nebraska, showed that, that, uh, that video, that clip. It's about a 40-minute interview that, that uh, Matt had with his dad. And as a result, that five guys in that prison trusted Christ. It's incre- I mean, it's incredible. It is incredible to hear Doug interviewed because he died of cancer. And he, he had, it was his fourth bout with cancer at this time. I mean, it, it was, it was ra- extremely aggressive. It was all over his body. It was in his brain. It was in his shoulders. It was in his back. It was in his hips. It was in his knees. It was in his pancreas. It was in his liver. I mean, it just was all over him. But he said every, <laughs> when, when Matt would wheel him into the a room to get his chemo, and as he, he said, "Son, son, was I a good witness for Jesus there? Did, did I project what I did? I glorify Jesus?" That's what he was asking as he's being wheeled out of chemotherapy, and uh, he he gave each one of his grandchildren a verse right before he died. They all met and gathered around the bed. He gave each one of his grandchildren a verse that he wanted them to memorize, and at the funeral. All those grandchildren stood up and recited that verse. That was really neat to see that. 
I, I'm saying all that because Doug, this is the, my pastor's dad who passed away, Doug had an understanding of that. Suffering and pain is horrible. But from eternity's perspective, it's for our good, it's for God's glory. And that's, you only can understand that if you truly, truly understand what Peter is saying here. You're going to suffer. But remember, Jesus suffered, and a much greater end resulted from that. What was that end? Our salvation. That was the end of his suffering. You don't want to <coughs> end. I don't mean, I mean the goal, the purpose. That's what I mean by end. The purpose was our salvation. And he's now enthroned in heaven, waiting for the Father to say, go get your church. And so that all Peter is doing is have the eternal perspective, and all that is so hard, but have the eternal perspective about suffering. All right? I'm going to end with that, if that's okay. And uh, t tomorrow, uh, strike that. Next week, we move into another dimension of Peter. He's still going to work some of this material, but it's it's really a neat, a neat uh, part of that uh, living your life for God's glory, and that's kind of the theme of chapter four. So, I'm going to pray, and then I, I'm going to first thank the Lord that this passage is over. Uh, I'm done teaching it. Lord, this is a difficult passage, to at least parts of it that we've gone through. Uh, I just pray that um, that how we approached it and the, the way we tried to explain it was honoring to you. Lord, if I said anything that was not of your spirit, would you dismiss it from our minds, but cause us instead to focus on the things that are true and truthfully reflecting what you're teaching us here. And I just certainly would understand that the most important thing that, that Peter was teaching us is as we suffer and go through difficult times, remember Christ's suffering. It was for us, and it accomplished our redemption. It was the purpose of our salvation. And that completed work as we identify with him in his death, burial, and resurrection means that we have a new identify, a new identity. And that's what baptism symbolizes, a new identity. We're a new person in Christ. And we're publicly taking that stand. We're publicly declaring that. What a triumphant remembrance that really is. And we thank you for your completed work, Jesus. Thank you that you are now enthroned at the right hand of the Father, waiting for your Father to say to you in that complex relationship of the Trinity, go get your church, son which will bring history to its completion in those final stages. So until that occurs, Lord, we put our faith and trust in you. We are part of your kingdom. We're a new identity. We're in Christ, and we represent you now. Help us to do that well in all we say and do this day, this week, till we gather again. May we be vehicles of your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.